Hello and welcome to No Character Limit. My name is Robert Thurk, and today you're going to hear episode 11 of my book, Ultima Thule, Unraveling the Unknown. In this episode, as well as my next one, I'm going to cover all of chapter 6 of the book entitled Forgotten Seasons because I'm going to bring back those strange deep season cycles that I talked about for a while before I got into the last chapter. That 26,000 year-long wobble of the earth called the procession, the 41,000 year-long tilt called the obliquity, and that 100,000-year-long cycle of the Earth's orbit and its relationship to the Sun called eccentricity. In the last chapter, I focused primarily on the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries, but starting with this chapter and especially going into chapter 7, we're going to start diving back deep into time. And we're going to start out nice and shallow. I'm only going to take us back about a couple thousand years in this episode. But as we keep going over the next few episodes, I'm going to go deeper and deeper back in time to where we reach new depths. And I'm going to take you back in time by following an ice core into our past. If you remember the last chapter, I spoke about how we as a species started coming together, working past national interests for the benefit of all of humanity, with open science as the focus and how the International Geophysical Year led to the drilling of the first ice cores. And even though in the late 1950s they didn't know how to read these ice cores, today we do. I want to show you how an ice core has opened our eyes to what has happened in the Earth's past in a way that we just wouldn't have been able to do had we never known how to read an ice core. We can prove independently that what an ice core is showing us about our past is true. There is a lot of skepticism surrounding climate science and some people flat out reject it. And when this happens, I think it's so important to really get back to the fundamentals so that you can understand what it is about climate science or ice cores and how they inform climate science so that you know what it is that ice cores can tell us as well as the things they can't tell us. Whether you are somebody who is skeptical of climate science or whether you are somebody who's very familiar with it, I'm still hoping that this episode has something new for everyone. 
because just like in the last episode, I don't know how many people know the story around the drilling of the first ice cores, how it has an association with one of the United States' top-secret government projects in Greenland called Project Iceworm. I just don't think a lot of this stuff is common knowledge. So I'm hoping that some of the stuff I share today will be new for most people who listen, regardless of your background. And I think it will help strengthen your understanding of climate science, regardless of what you already know or don't know. For those who are skeptical of climate science, I highly encourage you to check the sources. I always share those in the show notes. But ultimately, I really want to dedicate this episode to climate scientists because I know working on climate science over the last few decades with all of the politics surrounding it has taken a what should be another innocuous physical science and has turned it into an emotionally charged political issue. Climate scientists have helped us understand our planet in a way that few other scientists can match, and we are in their debt. So this episode is dedicated to them. As always, like, rate, or review. Tell a friend if you have been enjoying this series. I am hoping that you can help me get the word out there. If you feel that the effort I put into this work is worth some money, please consider a donation. You can get a free copy of this book if you do that, and so you don't have to wait for new episodes to come out. And you can see all of the rest of Ultima Thule, as well as all the pictures and descriptions that come with it. You can follow me on Mastodon at nocharacterlimit at mastodon.world. And you can also always reach out to me at nocharacterlimit at protonmail.com. With that, let's get into Chapter 6, entitled Forgotten Seasons. Chapter 6 Forgotten Seasons Part 1 The Earth Clock I want you to imagine a clock that, instead of having a second, minute, and hour hand, there was instead a hand for the day, month, and year. Let's call it the Earth Clock. The cyclical nature of clocks make them ideal to think about with the deep seasons of Earth. So on this Earth clock, the fastest hand would be the day hand, rather than the second hand, making every tick of this hand the passing of a 24-hour day. 
So it would tick 24 hours, another tick 24 hours, and so on. One full rotation of this hand gives us one month, which would be indicated by the second fastest hand on the Earth clock. So as the days tick by like seconds, the months would talk by like minutes. One full rotation of the month hand would bring then a single tick on the year hand. Clearly, this earth clock would be made for some being that lives on timescales much longer than our own. But what if we added more than three hands to this earth clock? So, in addition to the day hand, month hand, and year hand, there would also be the procession hand, the obliquity hand, and the eccentricity hand. While the year hand would move one tick forward about once every 365 days, the procession hand would take 26 thousand times longer to make one full rotation around the clock. Then there's the fifth hand of the clock, the obliquity hand, which measures the Earth's tilt. That would take 41,000 years to complete one full rotation, barely making it halfway around the clock by the time the procession hand completed one cycle. And finally, there is the slowest of the hands, the eccentricity hand, so slow that it would only be a quarter of the way around the clock by the time the procession hand completed one cycle, crawling through its 100,000 year span. But what makes these three deep seasons as special as the day, month, and year? A day, a month, and a year have wide variabilities within them. But is the same true for procession, obliquity, and eccentricity? And what can these cycles tell us about the history of the Earth? Start by considering the day hand of the Earth clock. A day, just like all of the Earth's cycles, has trends that are associated with it. For example, there is the obvious trend that over the course of 24 hours, the daytime is generally warmer than the night. As the sun climbs in the sky, the temperature typically rises, and in places like the Sahara Desert, the temperature can rise to over 100 degrees Fahrenheit during the day. But after sunset, with no clouds for insulation, the warmth is leached back into space, and the temperature can drop to below freezing. And while other places around the world don't swing quite so wildly over the course of a 24-hour day, the general rule that days are warmer than nights still holds true. 
but it is also true that there are exceptions to this rule. A warm front can hit overnight, or a cold front can hit during the day and break the general rule of the trend. But these are exceptions to the rule, such as when a day becomes colder than the night, they must be understood as an unusual variation, not the basis for an argument on how nights are warmer than day. It's one thing to say nights are warmer than days on rare occasions, and it's a completely different thing to say that there is no general trend or that nights are usually warmer than days. If someone were to claim this, then they would have to explain how nights could generally be warmer than days when the sun is the primary source of heating the earth, and they would have to disprove the entire history of days being warmer than nights. These general trends come to be understood almost as common sense. But the deeper a season is, especially one that we can't fully experience in one lifetime, our understanding of how they work becomes more complex. But even these deep seasons have general trends and rules that are almost just as easy to understand as the trends we see associated with the day, month, and year. And understanding these general trends can help us come to reasonable conclusions about times that have long since passed. On the Earth clock, a similar trend can be seen on the month hand related to the moon cycle, but also on the year hand when related to the seasons. As the northern hemisphere tilts towards the sun, creating its summer, the days tend to be warmer than when it tilts away from the sun, creating winter. The general trend is that days of summer are warmer than days of winter. But just as some days can be cooler than some nights, there are unseasonably cold days in summer that are colder than some unseasonably warm days in winter. But once again, this does not detract from the fact that the Earth has a general trend when it comes to the seasons of one year. It would be difficult to imagine what circumstances it would take for a summer to be colder than a winter even once, let alone on a regular basis, because summer is directly dependent on the Earth's tilt toward the sun and the amount of direct sunlight a hemisphere receives. With the seasons comes much more than mere temperature changes between times of day or times of the year. Reliable weather patterns also emerge. Tornadoes typically appear in the U.S. Midwest during spring. 
Hurricane season in the Gulf of Mexico begins during late summer, and the summer monsoon in India brings rain. Winter generally brings the dry season, nowhere more so than in the Sahara Desert, where whipping winds through the Bodeli Depression brings West Africans the Harmattan. These weather patterns allow climatologists to use these markers to understand the seasonal cycles of the deep past, long before human records existed. There are amazing satellite models of Earth from space that show these seasonal cycles and weather patterns at high speed, where a matter of years takes place over the course of just a few seconds. Visual models like these make the Earth look almost like it's breathing in a steady and predictable pattern. And we can see this only because time is sped up so quickly for us on the models. The ebbing and flowing of ice and greenery as winter changes to summer and back to winter again in both hemispheres has each year not quite exactly replicating the year before, but certainly rhyming with it. Every time a year has passed, an annual cycle has been completed, thus leaving reliable impressions all over the earth, even physically recorded right into the trunk of a tree. In the center of the trunk, the rings of a tree can be so tightly squeezed around each other that it's hard to discern where one ring ends and another begins. But as you follow the rings outward, they tend to be easier to distinguish. Count each ring properly and you've counted the age of the tree which is technically how many annual revolutions around the sun that tree has survived. The predictable impact that summers and winters have on a tree are marked clearly by the darkness of lines called springwood and summerwood. As a tree is able to detect the signs of spring, it produces more xylem, preparing for the growth season ahead, leaving a lighter colored band around the trunk. However, as late summer and autumn approach, the xylem production decreases, leaving a darker band called summerwood. Count a pair of spring and summer wood together, and this is one year. Count all of the pairs, and you have the age of the tree. But trees do more than just merely record how many years they've been alive. A story of the past can be discerned within the lines themselves. Thick springwood rings indicate a year with a bountiful growing season, while thinner and darker rings indicate a more difficult year, a possible lack of rain or nutrients. And 
because of the ability to figure out precisely which year had these difficulties in the tree, it's possible to then go to a weather database and verify the quality of that growing year in that region. And what we find physically imprinted into the trees tells a similar story to what is found in our own weather records. So when we reach the earliest reliable historical weather records, we are no longer lost as to what happened in earlier times, because old trees have preserved this information for us giving us an insight of the past before human record-keeping began. And the amazing thing is, there are actually trees alive today that are older than the history of all weather records by humans. But even the oldest trees are only a few thousand years old and therefore cannot tell us anything about the history of climate and weather on Earth before that. So then, we are forced to look for a record of the seasons that is older than even the trees. This is where the ice cores from Camp Century, Camp Fistclench, and all of the other locations at the poles become so precious. Ice acts in the same way as tree rings, but instead ice cores are a collection of layers of ice and snow that have been compacted down on top of each other over the Earth's surface for tens of thousands of years. Just like the trees have spring wood and summer wood to create a band indicating a year, it was discovered that the Arctic and Antarctic have a very distinctive summer and winter snow that compact into the ice. And just as one band of spring and summer wood together indicates one year, so does a band of summer and winter snow. As it snows each year, the new snow buries the old snow and it compacts into ice, but the bands remain in the compacted ice beneath hundreds, thousands, and in some cases, millions of years of freshly fallen annual snow locking vast quantities of the world's freshwater at the polar caps while creating a physical database of the Earth's historical climate. While ice core samples aren't as precise as tree rings, they are still precise to within a couple of decades of accuracy and can give information that extends thousands or even millions of years into the past. And by using oxygen isotopes found frozen within the ice, along with ash, dust, pollen, and other small specks left from the past, we can peer 
deeper into the Earth's history than we ever could before. These were the secrets that began to be uncovered from the ice cores pulled from the 1950s and 1960s samples from Camp Fistclench, Camp Century, and elsewhere. While tree rings show their oldest rings in the center of the tree, the oldest ice of an ice core is at the bottom nearest to the surface of the earth while the youngest ice is near the top of the ice shelf where the cores are being drilled from. When put up to light, these glass-like translucent tubes of ice reveal distinct lines hinting at extreme climate events that occurred in the past. The most obvious are the bands of volcanic ash. And just like a tree indicates a poor or strong growing season, ice cores tell us about temperatures and global events. Paleoclimatologists look into the ice and find a line of ash and date it, and then they go and look at other historical records to corroborate events such as a massive volcanic explosion. And time and again, that is exactly what is found. From there, they are able to make deductions about the climate deep into the past based on this knowledge. And now, I want to share with you a few examples of that so you can have a better understanding of how ice cores have really given us insight into our own past. Chapter 6, Part 2, Fire Hidden in Ice, Tambora, Somalis, and Santorini. Massive volcanic eruptions can be devastating, even to places that are far removed from the volcano itself. One of the most Infamous examples of this is the volcanic eruption of Mount Tambora on a remote island in Indonesia in 1815, tearing open a caldera in the earth over 4 miles wide and 3,600 feet deep. It killed about 10,000 people who were unfortunate enough to be in the immediate vicinity. But Tambora's immediate destruction was only the beginning of its impact. Like the plume of a nuclear explosion, the volcano released superheated ash 28 miles into the atmosphere, over four times the height of a cruising airplane and over half the distance to space. From there, the winds spread the ash around the planet like the fine dust of the Harmattan. This ash swirled around the upper atmosphere of Earth and reflected sunlight back into space, resulting in 
devastated crops worldwide. This is why 1816 has since been remembered as the year without a summer. In May of 1816, the United States had an unusually late frost, which killed essential crops in their cradle. In June, snow began falling in Albany, New York, where the average temperature is typically closer to 80 degrees Fahrenheit, followed by further frosts across the Northeast. Ice and frost was being reported as far south as Virginia in August, where the average temperatures typically push 90 degrees. The Northeast United States was one of the hardest-hit climate areas in the aftermath of the eruption and ruined countless lives. These early Americans packed up and moved west by the tens of thousands to start life over again on the frontier, with the promise of cheap land, many having lost their livelihoods in that strangely cold summer. To make matters worse for the Americans, the European demand for American crops to fuel their wars had stopped as peacetime settled over the European continent. It was the European desire for cotton that had kick-started America's western push before the unseasonable 1816 weather had started. But just as farmers were reaching the Midwest, the demand for American crops had dropped precipitously leaving these desperate migrants doubly destitute between the unpredictable climate and a sudden lack of demand for crops. The mysteriously cold summer played an incalculable role in destabilizing the early 19th century financial markets across America, culminating into the 1819 financial panic. This was how the subtle impact of one of the largest eruptions in recorded history left its mark even on the American economy, all without a single American knowing the eruption even occurred in the first place. A gray, cool, foggy drear was commonplace across the entire Northern Hemisphere during the summer of 1816, setting the perfect scene for a 19th century Gothic horror novel, which is precisely what it did. Mary Shelley's Frankenstein was famously written during the rainy, dreary, and cool summer of 1816 in Switzerland, along with many other stories meant to quicken the beatings of the heart, according to Shelley, despite the eruption also being completely unknown by the Europeans. The instant literary classic was produced from a now famously remembered competition between the guests of Lord Byron to see who could create a modern ghost story 
after sharing some old German ones in the gloom of that cool, gray, and rainy summer. Another important classic from the same competition was The Vampire by John William Polidori, often considered the first true vampire story. However, the 1816 summer was not completely devoid of warm days. Some days, the temperature would even rise to above average, but then, just as quickly, would plummet to near freezing again, bringing chaos to the annual cycle that humans had come to depend on over the course of thousands of years. The Indian summer monsoon was disrupted, Crop failures also hit China and Europe with reports of famine, riots, and looting from the destabilized season. The stressors in the food systems and weather also likely led to a devastating cholera outbreak the following year in India that spread to China and the Mediterranean. When the natural cycles of the earth are disrupted, the little stability that life on earth had come to depend on disappears and the world is thrown into chaos. Of course, nobody knew that Tambora was the root cause of all of these problems at the time. And while 1816 saw the worst effects, the true impact echoed on for years afterwards, with the cholera pandemic lasting until 1824. The unusually cold summer season of 1816 was one of those exceptions to the rule, a sort of year that broke with the trend and left physical and psychological scars all across the planet. Today, paleoclimatologists can look into ice cores and see this tragedy briefly come to life. A dark slash of ash through the glassy cylinder of ice. Using the summer and winter snows in the ice core, paleoclimatologists can see that some volcano must have erupted around the year 1816 even as no American or European records noted the actual event. But the circumstantial evidence was all around. Dreary cold weather, failing crops, failing markets, a pandemic. Just like the rings of a tree, the human records of America and Europe indicate there was struggle that year even as they had no idea that a volcano was involved at all. The volcanic ash found in the ice cores are actually minuscule glass shards deposited by acid rain into the ice, and each layer of this ash holds a unique signature of its origin, indicating precisely the volcano that it came from, just like a fingerprint or DNA signature. 
This is how ice cores were able to collect this fingerprint, allowing us to match its composition to Mount Tambora exactly. By tracing your finger along the ice core deeper, you glide through decades while passing mostly clear ice and occasionally thin bands of ash from smaller volcanoes. The particularly thick band of ash at 1815 and 1816 that indicates the eruption of Tambora has also been used as a benchmark to help determine other volcanic eruptions in history. Not only is ash chemically verified to be from the volcano, the documents of the time help indicate their effects. So continue to trace your finger down the ice core, past Tambora, for a few more centuries, until you find another particularly thick band that is placed around 1258 and 1259 CE. This 800-year-old band of ash led paleoclimatologists across the planet on a forensic hunt in search of what eruption created an ash layer so thick that it covered the Arctic for two full years. Before this discovery of ash in the ice core, no historical documents mentioned anything like an eruption that year, likely because, just as in the case of Tambora, the eruption occurred in a more remote location. Therefore, any historians studying the years of 1258 and 1259 wouldn't have been able to know that this massive eruption was playing a factor on the lives of these distant people. If paleoclimatologists could prove which volcano this came from, it would help put other historical occasions in context. Using Tambora as a model, how similar were the years of 1258 and 1259, now that it is known what a powerful eruption can do? With fresh eyes, historical records were reviewed. They indicated that a dry, cold fog settled across Europe in 1258, but there was no mention of anything like a volcanic eruption being recorded on the continent. Just as it happened in 1816, crop production was weak or failed altogether, leading to famine and pestilence over the following years. In England, mass graves that were discovered were thought to be from the 14th century Black Death were found to be decades older, indicating that they were unrelated to the plague. With the knowledge of this 13th century volcanic eruption, it more easily explains why the mass graves were there. It was the human toll from the subsequent famine and disease in the wake of the unusual weather of 1258. But to the people of Europe, the cause of this famine and pestilence were unknown. They struggled to understand why the seasons had forsaken them. They could not know that the poor weather was a result of some distant volcano, so they 
invented their own reasons instead. In 1259 and 1260, the records reveal the origin of an unusual movement that spread across Europe. The people who belonged to this movement were called flagellants, and it was an existential response to the famine and pestilence that came as a result of the volcanic eruption of this time. The group would typically march in paired procession down the street, reciting religious hymns and calling to God while they voluntarily flogged their backs with whips so hard that they drew blood. The message was clear. The blame for all of the unusual suffering that was happening across the continent must be the fault of the sins of the people of Europe. The movement, while at first accepted and promoted by high religious authority, ultimately became so disruptive that authorities from both the law and the church came together in order to put a stop to it. While they were successful in subduing the movement that was indirectly caused by this unknown eruption, the flagellants came back with a vengeance when the Black Death came nearly a century later. Today, the group is actually most closely associated with the time of the Black Death, but they have their roots in the tragic aftermath of 1258. As far as they believed, the suffering stopped as a result of their misdirected penitence, not due to natural climate behavior. So when the Black Death occurred in 1346, the memories of the suffering that occurred in the aftermath of 1258 were still fresh enough to be remembered by the oldest. The massive flagellant movement was associated with how things got better after hard times by those who remembered the years following 1258. It's no wonder why the flagellant movement then redoubled during the 14th century Black Death to again attempt to take control during a time that they had little. The flagellant movement also had the effect of demonstrating outwardly the pain that so many people felt inwardly with so much tragic loss happening all around them, externalizing their feelings. Thanks to ice cores, the volcanic eruption that disrupted the world in 1258 and 1259 was able to be traced back to the remote island of Lombok called the Somalis Caldera in late 1257 or early 1258. In my book, I share a picture at just how large this explosion must have been. Currently, there's a lake that sits inside of the caldera, and there's a tiny mini volcano that sits in the center of it. But you realize it's not that tiny volcano, which was the Somalis eruption. It's actually the giant crater or caldera that was created in which that tiny volcano sits in, as well as a massive lake. This must have been a sight to behold. 
According to found records written on Javanese palm leaves, it was discovered that there was a kingdom called Lombok that existed on the island at the time with a capital city called Pamatan. Pamatan existed right near the base of Samalas, and when it erupted in 1257, the entire city was buried and has never been located since. Somewhere underneath the volcanic earth lay a South Pacific Pompeii, another tragic eruption that destroyed an entire city. In an instant, the capital city of the Lombok Kingdom vanished from the earth, creating a sort of lost city like in Indonesian Atlantis. The Somalis eruption of 1257 has been said to have started the Little Ice Age, a period of time where the average temperature of the entire Earth was cooler and roughly began directly after the Somalis eruption and lasted through to the 19th century. The Little Ice Age, although not a real ice age, did have temperatures that were cooler than average for centuries, and the source of what caused it has been widely debated ever since. The Somalis eruption was certainly not the sole cause, but instead may have been one in a series of volcanic eruptions over hundreds of years that pushed enough ash into the atmosphere to keep the Earth cooler than average for 600 years. Ice cores also uncovered the secret to determining the average temperatures hundreds or even thousands of years into the past. The Somalis eruption was one of the greatest eruptions in the last 10,000 years, and it likely would never have been discovered if it wasn't for being able to read ice cores. Instead, likely to have just been passed off as some strange, unseasonable year. If nobody searched for the Ashes Fingerprint Volcano, then it's likely the palm leaf depicting the destruction of the Lombok Kingdom's capital would have perished without notice as well. So follow the ice core deeper now, and more signs of apocalyptic volcanic eruptions emerge. Two eruptions in about 536 and 539 CE brought another cooling period with the usual crop failure and disease in its wake. The plague of Justinian, one of the worst pandemics in ancient history, tantalizingly appeared shortly after these eruptions, but their connection to the plague is not certain. Like a cruel primeval game of terrestrial roulette, random generations are chosen to suffer from the arbitrary whim of the planet's slight adjustments. Even when volcanoes give some warning signs of eruption, they can still go centuries or even millennia without actually doing so. Whole generations can live and die at the base of an active volcano without having to face the impending explosion. Even with the most technologically modern equipment today, an accurate prediction of an eruption 
might only be hours to weeks of advance notice, but even that is not guaranteed. Time and again, large eruptions tend to follow similar patterns. First, there is the eruption that kills everything in its immediate vicinity, and then it destabilizes the climate. The destabilized climate then leads to the sudden and sporadic loss of crops with a spooky cool haze hovering in the sky for some places months or years. Then, as food supplies collapse, famine and disease follow in the succeeding years. It can be unnerving to think that a super eruption like Tambora or Somalis today would likely follow the same pattern as countless hapless generations before us. No generation really thinks about how to prepare for a massive eruption that can globally destabilize the climate, and so the effects are often inevitably inescapable. Going even further back to about 1600 BCE, about 3600 years ago, another powerful eruption from Mount Santorini happened right in the middle of the Mediterranean. Located on the island of Thera, the Santorini eruption was comparable in size and scope to Somalis. At the heart of the Santorini eruption was the ancient Greek Minoan civilization that would have suffered from tsunamis, superheated ash, and the mass destruction of crops and human settlements. The eruption sank a substantial part of the island of Thera into the sea, which, if you look at a satellite image of it, you can see it so clearly at how giant this eruption must have been. And it's also said to potentially be the source of the myth of Atlantis, a great ancient underwater city that has been regularly talked about but never found throughout all of recorded history. Like Pomaton of the Lombok Kingdom, a Minoan city may have been buried beneath the ash and molten rock, possibly lost forever in the watery depths of the Mediterranean. This eruption most certainly had a terrible impact on all of the neighboring lands, including Egypt, the eastern Mediterranean, and the archipelago of Greece, and may have even given rise to the biblical stories of famine, days of darkness, and polluted rivers, some going as far to say that the eruption is the origin of Moses parting the seas. You can imagine the tsunamis pulling the water away from the shore might make some people believe somebody having a superpower of actually taking water out of the seas. The reality is that little is known about the Santorini eruption aside from the fact that the Minoan civilization seemed to never have recovered from it. But ice cores at the poles and tree rings as far away as Nevada have helped narrow the timeline of this deadly destruction with the telltale signs of a sudden destabilization of climate and extended cool period. 
Each eruption that humanity has endured over the last several thousand years must have felt like the end of times, particularly to those closest to the eruption. The sudden crack of the earth shattering open makes a sound louder than thunder as people awoke from their sleep, dropped their wares at the market, and were stunned to stillness in the street. Those closest to any of the super eruptions, be it Santorini, Samalas, Tambora, or even smaller ones like Pompeii, must have been filled with utter dread and fear before the bowels of the earth spewed hot molten rock and poisonous ash from their depths and rained fire upon a panicked population. There is an amazing painting that I share in my book called The Last Day of Pompeii by Carl Bryulov that depicts just a frightening, beautiful, and sad scene of what it must have been like as Pompeii erupted and the people were about to be killed by the ash that rained down upon them. I suggest looking it up if you don't get a copy of the book. In many of these cases, the earth opened up and swallowed them, barely giving them any time to react to their imminent doom. Sudden tsunamis came out of the blue, and a peculiar dry haze that clung to the sky for years left people across the world unsettled and scared. Across the globe, People dealt with mysterious crop failures and unusual weather patterns, which was often followed by the specter of disease and pestilence. Then it is forgotten, and life, once again, moves on. Chapter 6 Part 3. Acceptance and Denial The effects on the climate and humans by these powerful volcanoes were only temporary. Through ice cores, a picture emerged of the climate over the last several thousand years. Volcanic activity, solar activity, and ocean currents have all played a role in determining the climate and weather patterns around the Earth. Over the last 2,000 years, the Earth has both warmed and cooled compared to the general average temperature since the age of the Romans. Very generally speaking, there was a Roman Warm Period, from about 100 to 300 CE, which was followed by a Dark Ages Cold Period, between roughly 400 and 800. This was then followed by the Medieval Warm Period, from about 800 to 1200, and then finally followed by the Little Ice Age, from about 1300 to 1850. I have a graph of the last 2,000 years that shows the temperature averages of these in my book. After 1850, though, 
and exponential warming has occurred as a direct result of the human impact on the global environment. Climate scientists have unequivocally found that there is an unprecedented warming period, especially when compared to the last 2,000 years. Climate scientists around the world unanimously agree that it is not the cause of volcanic activity, solar activity, or ocean currents, but instead has been caused by the carbon emissions of the Industrial Age, a barely two-century-old phenomenon. Today, this has been at the forefront of the climate conversation, because acknowledging the impact of human industry would imply that something should be done about it, and many have a financial interest in avoiding this. Billions of dollars have been invested in ignoring, delaying, and obfuscating solutions to address this destabilizing trend. Like when the tobacco industry learned that their product caused cancer, misinformation and denial campaigns funded by some of the richest people and businesses on the planet have kept the innocuous science of climate study a hot-button political issue for decades now. People who have denounced the warming trend since 1850 have been labeled climate deniers. But this is not like the astronomer Guillaume Le Gentil and mathematical historian Otto Neugebauer pushing back on Edmund Haley's claim that the Babylonian Saros was used to predict eclipses, all of whom would have largely been in agreement on most other related facts. This is also not a case of being right even as the scientific community stands against you, such as when Louis Alvarez first purported that dinosaurs died from an asteroid or comet impact. It took a lot of irrefutable evidence to finally have paleontologists come around to the idea as they thought Alvarez, a well-regarded physicist, wasn't knowledgeable enough in their field. Climate deniers hold none of the nuance of Le Gentil and Neugebauer and none of the prestige of Alvarez. They are often relatively unknown and have not contributed any meaningful research to the scientific community, instead holding close and questionable relationships with big industries responsible for the human-caused climate change. Due to their moneyed backing, they can often have an outsized role in driving the conversation about climate. Climate deniers were behind the shift in the discussion by challenging the popularized phrase of global warming and changing it to climate change because they found climate change to be a more neutral term and part of a natural, not man-made, cycle. Since then, 
Some of the very people who have led climate denial campaigns have realized the harm of inaction on human-caused climate change and have reversed sides. Frank Luntz, Jerry Taylor, Michael Shermer, and Stu Ostro are just some of the climate deniers who have since acknowledged that they were not basing their beliefs on science. If you doubt this, please just go to my sources. They are free in this podcast and see that these people who began the climate denial trend have since reversed sides because they were just getting paid to say something. They did not actually have to prove anything. I also share graphs of the models that climate scientists use that even include the margin of error of their models because I know some people might not know how trustworthy a model can be. Models can have margin of errors in them and even with margin of errors at their worst, the climate change caused by humans is unprecedented in the history of the last 2,000 years. But unfortunately, climate change deniers still exist. Climate deniers will often use the very data of the warm and cool periods of the last 2,000 years that I just talked about to claim that the current rising temperatures are not human-caused. They claim that even if there is a warming that is occurring, that it is only part of a natural cycle, not a man-made one. Charts and graphs, often comprised of cherry-picked data, show the Little Ice Age between 1300 and 1850 as an extreme time of cold for the planet, and that the medieval warm period between 800 and 1200 was a time much warmer than average. Climate deniers say that this proves concerns about the current warming period as overblown. This unscientific community with an oversized pocketbook works tirelessly to control the conversation of this powerful scientific topic without respecting the science itself. Just as during Lilius's time, where the Catholic Church denied the realities of the heliocentric model of the solar system, another period in history has come where great rewards go to those willing to overlook and manipulate the facts to fit a preferred narrative that counters the natural laws of physics. The modern age of climate deniers fits squarely in the role of those mathematicians who denounced Lilius's calendar to promote their own weaker model for their own personal gain at the expense of the truth. But as more evidence has been collected on these many periods over the last 2,000 years, like the Little Ice Age and the Medieval Warm Period, it's become clear that these trends were far more local than global. Now, climate scientists use a lot more than just ice core samples. 
including tree rings, corals, lake sediment, and other sources around the world to determine how prevalent these temperature swings were. And while during these times, places like Europe did go through some temperature variations, it is now understood that it was not a global trend. So, for example, when Europe was experiencing a warming during the medieval warm period, other places around the world experienced a cooling. The larger truth from the science demonstrates that the Earth's climate system is more complex when more data is added. In one of the largest studies of its kind by Columbia University, these alleged warm and cool periods, so coveted by the climate deniers, have been discovered to only be regional trends, not global. Please check the sources for this study. The reality is that the data over the last 2,000 years has stayed relatively consistent because, in terms of climate change, 2,000 years feels more like two seconds, barely a blip on the Earth clock. There are very few things that can change the climate in just a few hundred years, but the current warming period unequivocally driven by human activity, is the only true spike in global average temperature data over the last 2,000 years. Volcanic eruption or regional warming and cooling trends are the equivalent of a single warm night or an unseasonably cool day throughout the course of an entire year. Climate deniers conveniently ignore most of the data, and yet their efforts have given enough government and lawmakers pause on acting in response to our own powerful impact on climate. And of course, the most visible victim of this inaction right now is the Arctic. Each year, more ice melts away into streams, rivers, lakes, and oceans, and with it vanishes all of the history climate scientists were once able to draw from the ice with great abundance. The ice sheets that covered Greenland and Ellesmere Island are currently in the midst of rapidly melting away 120,000 thousand years of climate history. The nuclear waste entombed in the ice from the top-secret Project Iceworm at Camp Century is now poised to become an ecological nightmare, as it will soon wash out across the countryside along with the melting ice of a warming climate. Humanity stayed by the hand of climate-denying inaction will rip the crown of ice from the Earth's Arctic cap and experience a new world by the mid-2030s. The Arctic Ocean, once able to lock ships up in its ice for years, will be completely free of ice, opening shipping lanes that the 19th century would have only dreamed of 
within a decade of me releasing this podcast episode. The warming planet now allows for the largely untouched North to be used to extract resources rather than for the advancement of science. An ice-free Arctic is also foreign to our species. Humanity has never existed on a planet without ice in the Arctic since our species came into existence over 200,000 years ago. And it remains to be seen how we will adjust to a planet that is unlike any that our ancestors have ever lived on. This means our entire agricultural system has been built on a level of climate predictability that is no longer guaranteed and has the possibility of destabilizing our entire global civilization. listening to this episode of No Character Limit. Every episode, the sources that I used are located in the description if you would like to check them out. In addition, please consider liking, rating, and reviewing if you enjoyed this podcast as each one goes to help further the reach of this podcast for new people to hear. Each episode requires hours in research, writing, recording, and editing. So if you feel that what you just heard is worth a donation of any size, please go to the description and follow the links for that. Each donation comes with a free PDF copy of a writing piece of your choice, no matter the size of your donation, and you get a lot of extra features with that, including a lot of the artwork and graphs and pictures, as well as the descriptions that I don't include in the podcast. If you would like updates for new episodes, you can follow No Character Limit at mastodon.world. And finally, if you have a question, comment, or even a correction, please feel free to reach out at nocharacterlimit at protonmail.com. Thank you again for listening.